Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. School uniform rules are rarely popular. But when one London school changed its policy earlier this year, it unleashed a political storm. Pupils protested, parents were up in arms, teachers left their jobs, and the headmaster eventually resigned. So what sparked the controversy? By being a black person with quite a large afro, I thought that was really weird. Like, what have you got against afros? We're not just a bunch of rebellious kids protesting against a uniform. It's so much more than that. Are institutional rules which force people to wear their hair in a particular way, essentially racist. In the past, when a lot of people just had straightened hair, they were conforming to the expectation. But now that people have decided they don't want to expose themselves to really harsh chemicals, they don't want to feel ashamed of the way they look. There's a backlash against that. In the week when the Olympics have had to rethink their policy on swimming caps after they are accused of discrimination, is hair the new battleground in the fight for equality? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the politics of hair. I'm Sean Griffiths and I'm the Education and Families Editor of the Sunday Times. Sean covers all aspects of education, but recently she's been following a growing controversy that has divided a school in London. Pimlico School, it's a state secondary school in Westminster in London. It's an interesting school. It's in an area which has some very, very expensive housing in Belgravia, but it also, the catchment area includes housing estates all around the school. So quite a diverse student body. I mean, people who went there in the past, Jack Straw, the former Labour Home Secretary, sent his two children there. Matthew Freud, the PR executive, he is an alumnus. At the moment, it's run by Future Academies, this Academy Trust, and the chairs of the trust are Lord John Nash, who's a Tory peer and a former education minister, and his wife, Caroline. It's a a school in a very multicultural part of of London, and a lot of its uh, pupils come from ethnic minority families. But despite that, it has a very, very traditional curriculum, particularly in history, where British history is very much studied. And I think the, the idea behind the curriculum is very much a sort of canonical idea of, you know, children will benefit from studying the great and the good 
as has been handed down through the generations. Tell us a bit about what happened a year ago with the arrival of a new head teacher. So a year ago, Daniel Smith was appointed as the new headmaster of Pimlico Academy. He had been a member of the senior management team to another academy school, Ebbsfleet Academy, in Kent, largely made up of white working class pupils. In some ways, Ebbsfleet and Pimlico are similar in that they they are both schools that I would regard as a sort of running a back to basics regime. So very strict. And the idea that, you know, very smart uniforms, attention to detail on behaviour, detentions, high expectations, that all those things are good for children and they drive up standards and exam results and mean that children can have a future. So I wasn't particularly surprised that Daniel Smith had got a headship at Pimlico, given that he had come from Ebbsfleet. And what sort of changes did he make when he got there? Some of the changes that he brought in to Pimlico really antagonised both pupils and parents. This is one of them, a parent who's asked not to be named. Looking at the uniform policy, there were quite a few concerns that I think students raised quite immediately about kind of language in there, about hairstyles that obstruct the view of others, which is, I guess we understand that if you've got huge hairstyle, it could block the view of other people. Mm. But I think our interpretation of that, and I think most people's interpretation, and this is why most uniform policies do not have this, mm-hmm. is that it was directed to a certain community of people with Afro hair. Right. And right. kind of encouraging them not to wear their hair naturally out because yeah. it could be seen as obstructive. So, for instance, he tightened up the school uniform policy. He said that hijabs and headscarves had to cover all the hair of the girls who were wearing them. No hair sort of sticking out at all. Um, And they shouldn't be colourful. So he was also prescribing the colour of the hijab. And even more controversially, he said that hairstyles that banned people's view or students' views were not acceptable. And almost immediately that was taken as a suggestion that Afro hairstyles were banned. And that was regarded as racist and discriminatory, both by pupils and by some of their parents. And it caused a furore. It felt like the school had been colonised. They'd brought in this shift in policy and not acknowledging the concerns. It just felt like, well, we know best, so you will follow us. Tell me a bit about the reaction. Well, the reaction was quite swift. So the, the uniform policy came in last summer and very, very soon, in September last year, the school was flying, for instance, the Union Jack flag. That flag was removed and burnt by pupils. Graffiti appeared saying things like, Ain't no black in the Union Jack. So a lot of anger, a lot of a lot of upset at these changes. And they were also very unhappy at, at the curriculum. And what they were saying was there were not enough ethnic minority figures and topics being studied in the curriculum. And they wanted to see change there as well. And that is a common theme across many schools in the wake of George Floyd's death and, and the, the Black Lives Matter protests. In March this year, the students at Pimlico did actually walk out in protest. They had put posters up around the school saying that they were going to do this. The protest was going to have been on the football ground. That got locked and so it ended up being in the school playground. People who were there said it was a peaceful protest. There was chanting. I think at the end of the protest, I think the feeling among the students was that the school would back down. It would change these policies that that they had objected to and that their protests would be listened to. 
So the pupils had exercised their right to protest. What about the parents? What did they make of the changes? I mean, I know you've been speaking to one and we've agreed not to name her. But just tell me a little bit about her. She's a mixed race mum whose children are now at Pimlico. She's also a teacher and she did teach at Pimlico, though she's not teaching there now. I just think everybody's been really concerned about the changes and has been speaking about it for a very long time Mm -hmm. and nobody's really listened. So the students then decided to put together this protest and good on them. They wanted to be heard. And she backed the protests in the school. She actually attended the protests and she she feels that the, the students are completely in the right. She thinks the school should hold up its hand and say, sorry, we got this completely wrong. She said that at one point when she was walking past the school as all this was going on, she said she felt as though the school had been colonised. I think what she was suggesting was that despite the fact that this is such a multiracial school, the policies that were being imposed on the children were the policies of of white, privileged teachers or, or head teachers and a senior management team that did not understand that telling Afro-Caribbean children, how they should wear their hair, that they could not wear their hair in a natural style, even even if that wasn't the intention of that policy, was was really offensive. And that they really also wanted to see changes in, in the curriculum so that, so that, for instance, you know, things like the Windrush generation could be studied in history or, you know, relevant lessons for children who maybe don't want to learn just about the Henrys and the Hitlers and the Great British Empire. How did the rest of the staff react to this? Well, a number of teachers have left the school. The National Education Union, the biggest teaching union, has said it was going to talk to its members about whether they wanted to go on strike. The whole situation got very, very heated very, very quickly. Labour MPs weighed in. The local MP visited the school and, and tried to calm the tensions. And it did look for a while as though everything was calming down. The school was going to revise its uniform policy. That very upsetting phrase about the hairstyles was going to be removed. But then over the Easter holidays, a new letter went out from the school and it summoned the ringleaders of the protests to disciplinary hearings. And at that point, everything kicked off again. Just to to clarify, with the disciplinary hearings, are people being disciplined for, for breaking school rules, for instigating a protest? Or is this also representative of a reversal of the headmaster's stance on the day? I mean, is the policy on hair still in place? No, the policy on hair has been modified. It now just says that hairstyles need to be neat and tidy. In the email which summoned pupils to this disciplinary hearing, what the email actually says is, you know, following disruptive behaviour on the last day of term, X is required to attend a disciplinary meeting. And how did all of that go down with the pupils? The teenager I spoke to said that she did have an Afro hairstyle and she did feel that she would have been affected by this policy. She's very clever, very intelligent, very articulate and very supportive of the protests and very quietly angry at the way the school had behaved. So tell me, did she explain why she wanted to go to the protest? Yes, she did. And she was very eloquent about it and very, very moving about it. She said, we're not just rebellious kids protesting about a uniform. That's not what this is about. We're actually human beings and we really matter. And I thought, yeah, I mean, she's really speaking from the heart, actually, feeling very strongly about this issue. It was because of how he was kind of policing what we wear. Yeah. So there was a couple incidents where even our sixth formers were being sent home 
because he didn't like the shirt that they were wearing. Like he didn't like he didn't want them to wear polo shirts um, and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. he would send them home. And we just kind of thought it was ridiculous because we're in year 13 or year 12. We've, we've got our A-levels coming up and we've already spent so much time away from school. Yeah. Some people didn't really have the funds to go out and buy um, a brand new suit and as he wanted. So mm-hmm. we were just trying to conform by wearing some smart pants and like a polo shirt, but he didn't want that. How is the school justifying its stance? The way that schools with very, very strict behaviour policies and strict uniform policies normally justify their their culture is that it's in the interests of the children in, in the long run to have very clear school uniform rules, very clear behaviour policies, and that if they follow these policies and there's good behaviour in the school, that makes it easier for children to learn and they need to understand that in the workplace they need to be smartly dressed and, and presentable. But the problem is, of course, that this school uniform policy appears to have gone too far. The pupils at Pimlico School, how do they feel about it now, now that the the rules have been toned down? Are are they relatively happy? So some of the parents I spoke to said that they were going to take their children out of school. Others have said they were alarmed by seeing Britain-first activists outside the school. Michael Wilshaw, who is a very, very good, very experienced former head teacher, former chief inspector of schools, was called into the school to help troubleshoot the situation. He gave an interview, which I found quite interesting, where he said that he's very much from the sort of, you know, hard discipline, no nonsense school of leading. But he did say that rules have to be sensible. They have to be kind of common sense rules. And not so extreme that they offend children and parents because that's just counterproductive. And I think what we have here is kind of a situation in a way where you've got quite a lot of multicultural children, many from working class backgrounds, in a school in the centre of London where Lord Nash and Lady Nash, his wife, have a lot of input into this school. So Lord Nash, a former education minister, and his wife, uh, Caroline Nash. And it almost feels at times when you're looking at it that you've got working class, ethnic minority children up against the establishment in a way. I'm not sure if that's how the pupils and some of the parents um, see it, but sometimes it feels like that from the outside. So the head teacher in the end, he did resign. Daniel Smith stepped down from his from his post and There was then a decision that Ofsted, the school's inspectorate, would come in and do an emergency inspection. And at the moment, we're waiting for the results of that inspection. And it will be very interesting to see what it says. Certainly, Amanda Spielman, who's the chief inspector, gave a speech not very long ago where she raised situations in a number of schools recently, which she did not think were very helpful to children. And she said that in particular where online petitions, social media, hashtags and so on were being used to talk about problems in schools, that that could just stoke up difficulty and tension and get the situation very hot indeed very quickly. So that made me think, whoa, maybe this Ofsted report when it comes out about Pimlico, maybe it will be saying some difficult things about the behaviour not of the school staff or about the uniform rules, but, you know, about how they were reacted to. I think it'll be interesting to see. This case at Pimlico School, it's not a one-off. You know, there have been other cases too. Do schools across the country need to consider the view that 
uniform policies like this are essentially racist. Well, I think that's what the parents and, and the pupils at Pimlico Academy felt. And you're right, this is not the first school to have told children that they have to wear Afro hairstyles in a particular way, that they cannot wear their hair naturally. And there have been cases before, including one young girl who took uh, her school to court and won something like an £8,500 payout. Ruby Williams received £8,500 in an out-of-court settlement after her family took legal action against the Urswick School in East London. So it's an ongoing issue and I think it's become even more urgent in the wake of George Floyd's death and the, the Black Lives Matter protests. And how is this happening now? I mean, there were changes to the law to allow Sikhs not to wear helmets decades ago, and yet there still don't seem to be rules for Afro hairstyles. How is it possible that now, in this country, hair is still causing such controversy? I think there's just a long way to go still. One of the initiatives that has started is this thing called the Halo Code, which has been started by a number of young young ethnic minority activists. And they are trying to get both schools and workplaces to sign up to a code that outlaws discrimination against particular hairstyles. So that workplaces can't say you need to wear your hair in this particular way. And even that shorthand, you must have a neat and tidy hairstyle. If you have an Afro, can those words be used against an Afro? And particularly when there's a movement, I think, among young people to to wear their hair naturally, not to straighten it, not to braid it. And so the Halo Code is, I think, a really, really interesting initiative. A number of schools have signed up to it, including some private schools, and a number of workplaces, including Marks and Spencers, I noticed the other day. And what's the the next step for them? What are they pushing for? Apart from getting people to sign up voluntarily, is there any form of legislation that might make it impossible for people to discriminate on on the basis of hair? Yes. Well, this initiative, I think, is is also big in America, the whole Halo Code project. And in America, certainly, there are calls for states to legislate to make it unlawful to discriminate against anyone on the basis of their hair. And that kind of move could easily happen here. I mean, maybe in a private member's bill, but but maybe in, in a more mainstream form. I think it's it's one of those issues that's really growing. I think this whole debate is just going to get bigger. As the debate continues to rage and calls for legislation grow louder, what is it like for those caught in the middle? For people who feel discriminated against simply because of their hair? In a moment, we'll hear from the academic and broadcaster, Emma Dabbery. But first... Hello, I'm Jane Mulcairns, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Most people talk about us and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew, go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Emma Dabbery, and I am a writer, academic and broadcaster. I've written two books. One, the most recent one is called What White People Can Do Next from Allyship to Coalition. And my first book was published in 2019 and that is called Don't Touch My Hair. Well, tell me about that. Tell me about your hair. I mean, when you were a child, was it something you were very aware of? Oh, yes. It was something I was made to be incredibly aware of. I didn't see anybody that had hair like mine. No, I mean, hair Hair is really, is like powerful and potent in many ways. But particularly when I was growing up in Ireland, like little girls just had long hair. That's just what, what little girls had. It was like a, an important kind of marker of being, of being a little girl. And, you know, I had a short afro. So that really kind of just set me apart from my peers and really like excluded me from, you know, girls would spend ages brushing each other's hair and plaiting and unplaiting each other's hair, you know, and I was just kind of very outside of all of those kind of activities. So it was something that I felt keenly aware of. Also, my mum is white and she didn't know what to do with my hair. Afro hair requires like a lot of like expertise to know how to maintain it. And I feel that a lot of Ireland at that time was incredibly homogeneously white. There was very little difference in any way, really, you know, very white, very Catholic, very socially conservative. And I experienced quite a lot of racism. And I think one of the things that singled me out kind of most dramatically was my hair. So I became quite fixated on my hair. I used to, you know, kind of cry myself to sleep and just pray that like if I could just have kind of normal, quote unquote normal, like a kind of lank maxi brown hair, that all my problems would, you know, dissolve. It must have been so difficult. I mean, how did the other children treat you? just children it was also adults (laughs) you know people would cross the road to come and like look at me or to like touch my hair 
I had many people tell me that I was the first black person that they'd ever met. So that, you know, held a lot of fascination for people. And I guess for the, you know, for the people doing it, it's maybe the first time they're saying this to somebody, but for me, it was quite a defining experience of growing up. So it, it became, you know, very exhausting to be um kind of poked and and touched and spoken about in that way like people would come over and be like oh my god like look at her hair and then I remember things like when I'm a teenager and all of my friends have you know long straight hair to varying degrees of kind of luster and volume but there was one in particular that had very long very thick black hair very shiny black hair that was very beautiful hair so I think there was a big distinction I guess between the length of her hair and the length of my hair and the the textures of our hair and I remember having like a slumber party at her house and in the morning like her like shrieking being like oh my god there's like pubes in my bed and then she was like no it's just Emma's hair and everybody being like ah and me just being like oh my god like I want to die you know when you're a teenager you're already like self-conscious yeah and then that kind of stigma and kind of like idea of like deviance around your hair was just deeply shameful you know and it sounds really difficult if your mother didn't know how to care for it was there a point when all of that turned around when you suddenly felt comfortable with your hair Yes, but many, many years later, like well advanced into my adult life. When I was 14 in Ireland, I made a black friend, which was like quite an event. And she was someone who had just moved to Ireland, you know, and she hadn't lived there that long. And I remember seeing her somewhere and seeing her hair and it was in long box braids. And I was like, oh, my God, that would I, I, I need that. That that would that would sort me out. So her mum started braiding my hair. So from like the age of kind of 14 to until I left, I just always wore my hair in like long, long braids. It still was very different to having like straight hair, but there was still like length. And most um, importantly, like my hair went down. I still wanted to be able to like swish my hair, you know, in the wind or have the little wispy bits that frame frame the face or just be involved in all the kind of hairstyling culture that my friends would do you know spraying sun in in your hair and getting like blonde highlights and like all of that stuff that I couldn't do but the braids did solve a lot a lot of my problems although as soon as I moved to the UK I was just like oh my god I'm getting these out of my hair head and I'm straightening my hair and then I straightened my hair for the next you know however many years until I eventually probably in the last few years of chemically straightening my hair I was like I don't want to do this anymore you know it's quite a it's called relaxing your hair. And I always say it's such an innocuous term for what's quite a brutal process. You know, you're applying really harsh chemicals to your head. Those chemicals are associated with different types of cancer, with oh. fibroids, fertility issues. At the very least, they often leave chemical burns, you know, on your on your scalp. My scalp would be regularly burned, but I'd just be like, oh, at least that means like, you know, I got my hair really straight. But the last few years of doing that, I was just like, this really doesn't, like doing this really doesn't align with my (laughs) worldview, with my politics. But I still felt too scared to go back to what I considered a long vanquished enemy, which was my natural hair texture. But when I was pregnant with my first son, that kind of gave me the imperative to start. I didn't want to put those chemicals on my head. Um, at that time I also I didn't know the gender I didn't know what gender my child was going to be but I was like irrespective whether or not um, it's a boy or a girl I actually want them to know me with my 
natural hair texture. I don't want them to think mm. that I think there's something wrong with my hair and for them to have, you know, the kind of warped perception of my hair and like potentially their own hair that, that I had growing up. So yeah, I finally bit the bullet and, and cut it all off. And that's the thing. You can't like unrelax your hair. It's like a permanent process. So you have to just cut it all off and start again. It's really interesting you sort of talk about the way you wanted to change yourself so that your children didn't grow up with the same kind of sense of slight shame or embarrassment around their hair. Why is black hair still stigmatised even now? So for me, you always have to go back to the history of things, of where these ideas come from. And you know, that you can actually trace the invention of the white race, the notion of there being a white race and a black race back to a set of slave codes in colonial Barbados in the late 17th century. Through this process of dehumanization to justify enslavement that happens, you see this new concept of a black race who the English colonies, the European colonies, their economies are becoming increasingly reliant on the exploitation of their labor and western economies are becoming you know increasingly reliant on slavery and one of the things that we see is the beginning of this stigma around black people's hair and this idea that this isn't hair it's actually wool because these are not really fully human people you know because there's this need to justify their use on plantations and farms so the origin of the stigma comes from that history and we haven't dispensed with that history yet you know we haven't had a full and honest reckoning with it it seems odd that in this day and age you know when we're more aware than ever about these issues the structures still aren't in place to protect people's rights i mean there was a report in 2019 which appeared to show that anti-Afro hair policies have actually increased by 66%. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so that is so interesting. I think in the past, when a lot of people just had straightened hair, they were conforming to the expectation. But now that people have decided they don't want to expose themselves to really harsh chemicals, they don't want to feel ashamed of the way they look. There's a backlash against that. There's this tension arising. But yeah, it, it's quite shocking that it seems to be getting worse because we, we assume there's progress, yeah. you know, and that things get better. But in this instance, that doesn't really seem to be the case. I mean, what do you make of schools who decide to stick to their rules and not change? I mean, is that racist? Well, I think that's the reason the law needs to um, explicitly state. So the Equalities Act, 2010 Equalities Act, makes illegal to discriminate against anybody on the grounds of you know their race within that there are certain protective characteristics and complexion is one of the things that's named but hair texture isn't and I think that's perhaps because it's something that uniquely affects people of African descent mm. so it's kind of an oversight so I think just explicitly adding hair alongside colour or complexion would just offer that extra protection so that we don't have to have a debate about whether or not it's racist. You just can't do it. And Emmy, you mentioned that you've got children. Tell me about how you've sort of raised them to think about their hair. You know, what are your hopes for for how they'll be able to live their lives? Yeah, so one of them is just a baby, so He's not really thinking about his hair at this stage. My elder son definitely had come home from school and been like, you know, like a lot of his friends had 
straight hair and there was one or two years where they all had quite long hair and they had kind of like floppy fringes and he was just like oh I really wish I could kind of flick my fringe like out of my eyes and I was like oh my god I I, I recognize this this is like very much how I felt you know and I was just like oh god no how is this still happening in London however many decades later so I've really just made his hair seem like a really fun um, and positive thing for him. So he loves going to the barber shop. He loves getting a fade. He loves getting patterns cut in his hair. And his school allows that. If we were doing that and then he was going into school and being punished for that, that would be undoing all of the effort that I'm trying to make to make him feel positive about his hair. Yeah. So we're lucky that it's a that he goes to a school that is very relaxed about things like that. But I, I can't even begin to imagine if he was being punished. So he actually has like a really good relationship with his hair and he, he takes kind of pride in his hair. And yeah, he also is aware that he can do a lot of things with his hair that his friends with straight hair can't do with theirs. So he's actually like, I can do all these kind of cool shapes with it and stuff. So yeah, he has a really good relationship with his hair, which is great and very different to how I felt growing up. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Education and Families Editor at The Sunday Times, Sean Griffiths, and writer, academic, and broadcaster, Emma Dabbery. You can read more of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk and Emma's new book, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition, is out now. The producer today was Asir Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If there's a story you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do get in touch. You can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. <laughs>